The following is special programming sponsored by Public Radio KUNV 91.5. The content of Soul to Soul does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Soul to Soul, universal ideas for a brighter tomorrow. This show that airs at 7.30 on the third Sunday morning is a show that is a free-for-all of positive energy. This show talks about books, music, politics, books, food, COVID-19, oral interviews, books, and Las Vegas history. Today, Las Vegas history is the topic And I am with Dr. Michael Green. If you have never taken a class from Dr. Green, you have missed the opportunity to learn history in an engaging, intellectual way. So today he is going to talk about, oh, we're just going to talk about this and that and all kinds of good things. Michael, how are you? I'm okay. Thanks, Clayton. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's wonderful to have you here. You're very kind. So, Michael, you did a presentation not very long ago, and you talked to some Rotarians, and you talked about their history, but you did something that I really admire. You didn't just talk about that group of men, but you also let the public know that there are other people here also. So talk about that a little. Talk about how you think it's important. We're talking about critical race theory all the time. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how important it is for us to remember that we were not alone, that white men were not alone. White men are the easiest history to write about. Uh, They made a lot of speeches, They owned most of the newspapers. They held the offices. And in our line of work, for many years, no one else got much attention. First day of my lecture classes, I'll often say, you have to understand that originally history was the story of rich white men, written for rich white men, taught to rich white men by rich white men. Now, I'm a white man, not rich, and more's the pity. But... Thankfully, our profession has changed. I think the 60s were a key turning point, though you could certainly see things happening before that. There were, I guess we'd call them outliers because there weren't that many. And we realized that the written word is not the only source. What you do with oral history is an important source. Material culture is important. And that's helped us reconstruct the lives of people who didn't necessarily leave a written record. And this is part of the great coherent whole, if you will. And I don't think we understand what's going on simply that way. We had a professor, Gene Mooring, who talked about this. He had a professor named Herbert Gutman. And Gutman wrote a book called, read a book called Time on the Cross – by two economic historians trying to explain how slavery worked. And they used sources that 
were not from the enslaved. Well, you're not going to know how slavery operated that way. And it probably took a few years off of Gutman's life. He was a marvelous scholar, and he wrote a book answering them. And I think that that's an example of how you can go the wrong way, as the original book did, and then you look and say, well, all right, what can we learn about the lives of people who we wouldn't normally at that point perhaps talk about, too often not even think about? So, Michael, parents today are afraid of history. We're using the term critical race theory. And they, I think I know what they're afraid of. I think they are afraid that their children will be introduced to the truths of history that are not going to be pleasant. What would you say to parents like that? There's a little story I like to tell about being at graduate school. And a woman I was interested in, why don't I put it that way, was studying with another professor, and he came into class and he said he had a student teaching a course called Contemporary Civilization, kind of the great books course. And the students were upset because it was all the old white guys. And they were refusing to do the work. And he said, well, what do we do? And so she said to me, what would you say? And I'd say, know thine enemy. Well, in this case, they are afraid, in part, that they're going to be taught a history that creates the idea that they are the enemy themselves. And they're not. History is just complicated. And that's what I would say. History is not yes or no. When you say to me, well, tell me the facts. Okay, here's a fact. Abraham Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. Okay, why did he do it? Uh-oh. Now we're getting into interpreting it. What's more, if you want just the facts, which facts do you want? I mean, if you want to know about the life of Clay T. White, then we can recite everything from day one, and it's not going to be that interesting to you or to anyone else. We pick. We choose. We all do this. Another thing is, I like to... I used to do this, I taught at the community college, and I taught only courses, really, that you had to take. And a lot of people do not want to have to take the courses they have to take. I was that way. And I would say, uh, all of you are historians and may not know it. So uh, any of you thinking of going into the medical professions? I have a few hands go up. I pointed at someone, what do you want to do? I want to be a nurse. I said, oh, okay, cough, cough made noises with my nose. I said, I'm coming in to see you. Talk to me. What do you do? She said, well, uh, what are your symptoms? Okay. Uh, my stuffy nose, cough. When did they start? I said, uh-oh, you're doing history. And we don't tend to think that way. It's not that because we're historians we think everything is history, but everything has a history. And what we discussed five seconds ago is history. 
might not make a textbook. But I think conveying a history is complicated. And I read a line the other day, and I'm, I'm not sure. I think the historian was Richard Ellis, who did the Jeffersonian era. But he said, you don't refer to Jefferson as he did this but. You say he did this and. And so you can have a founding father who wrote some of the most inspiring words in our history – and he also was impregnating an enslaved woman. And then, as we know from the great work of Annette Gordon-Reed, and I do an age where I don't go fanboy on a lot of historians, but I did on her, uh, which scared her to death, frankly, <laughs> uh, at a conference. Some guy's bearing down on her. But, you know, okay, what kind of negotiation was there? And history, we're reminded, is not simple. The simple fact, Jefferson got her pre- got Sally Hemings pregnant. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know the details, and I doubt we ever will. And it's all right because it's all complicated, and none of us is perfect. Exactly. So thank you for that. I- I'm hoping that as people hear more and more explanations, that it will become less fearful. Well, to learn history. Yeah, and you know, related to that, I mean, I, I began a little crusade. I would email reporters around the country when I'd read a story where they'd refer to critical race theory or someone commenting on it. And I'd say, did you ask them what it is? And, you know, I was talking with a prominent Las Vegas from our history the other day who told me several stories I cannot repeat. Okay. And he said, you can't repeat them. But it's good for background. It's good for, you know, yeah, that's true. And critical race theory, as an example, may be in the background when someone is teaching a class. It doesn't mean you're teaching critical race theory. But, you know, we underestimate children in the first place. And one of the ways we underestimate them is we forget that at a certain age, our favorite word is why. And that doesn't go away entirely until we're boring adults. Exactly. Yes. So I, I, I hope that people will allow American history to be taught in classrooms. All of it. I agree. And at the same time, again, history, perspective. This is not new. You can substitute a lot of different words and phrases for critical race theory. And you can apply it involving gender. You can apply it to religion. Intersectionality. Yes. And it's all there. But, you know, you may say something in class. It happened to me. I I was doing this talk, this lecture in class, and I forget exactly what it was. But I said something about, well, if you take blonde people, or if you said you have blonde people, you have red-haired people, you have brown-haired people – and apparently, I had a student who was not a native speaker, who was blonde, and thought I was singling her out. And then I had to say to her, no, 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 that, that's not it. Well, we learn from our mistakes, and I made a mistake in not being clear enough. But we think it's critical race theory is the only issue. Or, what, or if we talk about this, the issue of don't say gay. No, this is a continuum, unfortunately. Yes. So 
I do oral history here on this campus. People might not know that you're one of the best oral historians around. Oh, well, no, I'm being interviewed by one of the best oral historians around. Um, I did an oral history of an attorney, Ralph Denton. And I want you to talk about it. Give me some highlights of Ralph, Ralph Denton. Tell the audience <laughs> who that gentleman is, well, was. Ralph was born in Caliente, north of here, in 1925, lifelong Nevadan. Went to law school in Washington on the patronage of a few different people in the day when we didn't have a law school, no Boyd School of Law yet. And if you were going to go to law school as a Nevadan, you went to Washington, D.C., your member of Congress got you a job and you worked part-time. And one of the people who tended to Ralph or helped him was Senator Pat McCarran. And Ralph was loyal to McCarran throughout his life. He also disagreed with a lot of what McCarran stood for. The beauty of it is McCarran knew that. He didn't care. He wanted Nevada kids to get their law degrees and go back to Nevada. Now, would they be loyal to him and help him? Yeah. But he was afraid of what we would now call a brain drain. Ralph overmarried. (laughs) Uh, I can say I did the same. But the example of this is when he was going to marry Sarah, who's still with us, 97, totally with it. Yes. Uh, He got a call, or actually Sarah got a call to come see McCarran. Ralph wasn't invited. And she went in to see him, and Ralph was told to wait outside. And when she came out, she was just smiling. Oh, what happened? Well, McCarran wanted to know what they were going to do after they got married. Sarah was from Kentucky. And she said, well, Ralph wants to go home and practice law, so that's what we're going to do. And he said, good, we cannot afford to have Nevada kids leaving. And it gives you a different view of McCarran. Yes. And I completely supported taking his name off the airport. I I think Ralph would have. Now, Ralph finished law school, eventually moved here. First, he went to Elko. And he moved here in 1955, and he represented a lot of different people, including some characters including the guy uh, whose name is on the building we're sitting in for this interview, Hank Greenspun. And he, he once, and Hank took on McCarran and McCarthy. Bless him. He, he was tough. He was willing to take a position that would not make him popular in certain quarters. But Ralph told a story. He had an autographed photo of McCarran in his office, and every time Hank would come into the office, he'd stop, turn, look at the photo of McCarran, turn, look at Ralph, shake his head, and then they'd go about their business. He did ACLU cases. He did civil rights cases. He didn't really want to hold public office. He was appointed to one, or he ran for one, DA in rural Nevada, Esmeralda County. He thought he should run for office to see what it was like. Ran for Congress twice because he thought the incumbent was just wrong. Lost both times. And spent the rest of his days, as he put it, practicing law for his friends and neighbors and a great storyteller. And this goes to the point of oral history because I had a great horse to ride. And I did this for the Reno project for the university there. You weren't here yet. We didn't have an oral history center. And uh, Tom King, fine oral historian who ran the project there, he called me after the first couple of tapes I'd sent in and he said, you know, it, it... It can be a conversation. And I said, you don't understand. I say, 
I give the information, we're recording, it's this date, and I say, Ralph, Pat McCarran. Then I just sit back, and Ralph's off. He didn't need me. Um, But this goes to, I think, interviewing, not just oral history, that we were friends. We became better friends through this. Yes. But he felt comfortable. He talked his great friend Grant Sawyer into doing an oral history. And the interviewer had done some oral interviews for his dissertation, the late Gary Elliott, Mm -hmm. good friend of mine. But they were comfortable together. And Sawyer still was was careful. There were things he wasn't going to talk about, and that was fine. And Ralph said he he didn't have – he said Grant had more sense than I did. So uh, he said, I talked about all kinds of things. But I – think it's a wonderful book and Ralph would say, oh, you, d- you wrote such a great book. I didn't write it. That's correct. Turned it into a narrative by mm-hmm. taking the question, putting it into the answer yes. and reorganizing, but it's his story, his words, his book. Great. And, and that's, I think, what a great oral history is and what a great oral historian like yourself does. So if you could do, conduct any oral history project you wanted to. Ooh. If you could, the sky is the limit. Money is no object. What would it be? Oh, does the person have to be alive? No. Okay, then this is easy. It's easier than you think. Lincoln. Lincoln. Tell me about Lincoln. Tell me about the new book. Well, here is why I say Lincoln. Okay. The three most written about people in the English language are Jesus, Shakespeare, and Lincoln. Now, that makes sense if you think about it. Mm -hmm. They have something in common. We know very little about them. We don't know a lot about their lives. They're personal? Yeah. Okay. And there's a long, if you read the Bible, there's a lot, long periods in there where you you don't know what Jesus was up to. Exactly. Or you have a general idea. Shakespeare, there's a lot of mystery. Lincoln, too. Lincoln's papers, the published letters were nine volumes. Jefferson, I think, is at 50, and they're still going. Well, you know, I I pity the Jefferson scholar, but the Lincoln scholar has a similar problem kind of in reverse. You you just cannot dig it all up, and you kind of have to make some guesses. And my least favorite phrase in historical writing is must-have. Lincoln must-have? No, if you don't know, then he did not must-have. Okay. So I had done a dissertation on the politics of the Civil War and wound up writing two books for a series called The Concise Lincoln Library, which I take credit in part for naming because they were originally going to call it The Concise Lincoln. And I said, no, Lincoln was concise. The historians are not. And I put myself in this category. And uh, I did one on the 1860 election, the first presidential election he ran. And they had wanted to do one on Lincoln and Native Americans. And this is a subject that has not gotten a lot of attention. And it's a difficult subject. I don't go into this saying, oh, I love Lincoln. He he started out perfect and got better. No, he's a complex person like the rest of us. And one of the things I found was how easily people just dismissed or ignored whatever he did with Native Americans or said or thought. And in turn, how if you want to say he grew 
on the subject of African Americans, you don't see the same growth it with Native Americans, not to the same degree. And I think it's partly that you know how we'll say a oh, president was great or not great. What if the president had been president at a different time? The times demanded certain things. What are the big issues on Lincoln's mind? Now, Native Americans were important. I'm hardly minimizing them. But the union itself, what to do about human slavery, how to keep yourself in office, that kind of matters. And then set aside the personal stuff that might have been going on. So tell us just a tiny bit so that we will run out and buy the book. Okay. Tell us a tiny bit about his relationship with Native Americans. He didn't hate them. I want to start there. Okay. In the 19th century, think of Andrew Jackson. Yes. Who didn't necessarily hate every Native American, but hated them as a group. Yes. And Lincoln lived, grew up on the frontier. Uh piece of trivia I figured out working on this book, he was the first president who spent his entire life before the presidency living west of the center of the population. He was a Westerner. If the center of the population was in Pennsylvania, he was in Kentucky. If the center was in Ohio, he was... So, anyway, in the West, there was a tendency to, oh, well, just you know, kill him, push him out of the way. So, he serves... And he took great pride in it. He was in the Black Hawk War. Uh, the Sock and Fox were driven from their land. He was elected captain of his militia unit. Okay, his unit never saw any blood or never fired a shot in anger, you might say. Uh, they got into the war late. They, they were kind of a cleanup crew. Uh, he had a little trouble managing them. Uh, there were some rowdies from uh, New Salem. And one day... This elderly Native American comes into the camp and they wow, finally, an Indian. We can kill somebody. And the guy had a letter giving him passage or whatever from the Secretary of War, Lewis Cass. And they're saying, that doesn't matter. It could be forged, whatever. And Lincoln said, no, no, it is not right to do this. And they start arguing with him. And... He said, you will not touch this man. And they said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, I will take on whoever I need to take on. He said, well, you're bigger than we are. And he essentially said, then come at me in multiples. He was ready to fight about this. And that's not someone who hates mm -hmm. Native Americans. Uh, but it's also is ultimately someone who doesn't think a lot about them in the way he's sitting there puzzling over African-Americans and slavery. And that helps explain why not much changed. But there's something else, and it goes to my point about you know, presidents serving at the right time. You had abolitionism. Yes. Yes, a strong abolitionist mm -hmm. movement. You did not yet have a strong Native American reform movement. So they didn't have a voice. They really didn't at mm -hmm. that point. There, there are a few, mm -hmm. but they're very few. One of them got to talk to Lincoln. Lincoln told him we need to do something about this. But the most famous incident, I don't like the word incident or case, situation, mm -hmm. even that doesn't work, 
involves the fact that there was an uprising, if you want to call it that, by the Dakota in Minnesota. I say if you want to call it that because they were supposed to be fed and they weren't. And they took action. And in the end, uh, the army court, if you can call it that, sentenced 303 of them to hang. And Lincoln said, no, hold up, send me the files. They're all sent. He gets three lawyers in the Interior Department and says, go through them. I want to know who committed war crimes. I want to know who violated anybody, male or female. We end up with 38, actually 39. There was one, there was confusion, and he let that one off. Meaning, he ordered the largest mass execution in American history and the largest commutation of death sentences in American history at the same time. So a couple of years later, Lincoln being Lincoln, he's a political animal, and he mentions to a congressman from Minnesota, you know, my majority wasn't as big in Minnesota in 1864 as it was in 1860. What's going on there? And he said, well, you know, if you hanged all 303 of them, you would have done better. Ooh. And Lincoln said, I could not afford to hang men for votes. Well, I can think of presidents who would have. Ooh. But thinking about that as we are almost at the end of our time, this is a wonderful segue into what just happened in one of the shopping malls here the other day. Yeah. There was a display, an exhibit put mm-hmm. up, and it shows a person with a noose around his neck and his hands behind his back. And that display stayed there for a day, I believe, until someone mm-hmm. complained. But the people who put the display up didn't seem to think it was any big deal to show a scene of a lynching Mm -hmm. in a shopping center in 2022. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to people who saw that and became upset, people who put that together and won it and didn't seem to care about it, and people now who are protesting against it? What would you say about this incident? Well, I would say to those who were upset, they had every right to be upset. I'd say to those protesting, you know, you you absolutely have the right to protest and you might well be right to protest. This goes to my political attitude. Let's talk about the kind of protest. The people who did it may not be – I don't want to sound, to sound the way it's going to sound. They may not be bad people. Okay. They may be people who don't think and were raised in a different time. And this goes to something I said in class. A few years ago, early in his administration, I think, Donald Trump said something about Frederick Douglass that implied that Douglass was still alive. And in class, I brought this up, and I could see there are liberal students, there are conservative students, there are students who don't care. And the students who were Trump supporters, I could see who was a Trump supporter because you could see people tensing. And I said, let me tell you what is wrong with that statement. And it has nothing to do with Donald Trump except for one thing, his age. He was raised in a time when we had, as I guess it was then called, Negro History Week. And all we heard about was George Washington Carver and the peanut. 
and great scientist who did great things, but I think there's more to the story. Now, I can criticize someone for not having thought about it or read a book since, but this is how a lot of people were raised. And education should be constant. My favorite writer of all time was Russell Baker of the New York Times, who wrote what I still think is the best autobiography I've ever read growing up. But he did a column called School Versus Education, and he says at some point when you have graduated and gotten your degrees, maybe you will open a book and start to become educated. Good. That's excellent. So we have about two minutes, and I think that is a wonderful place to stop. I want to say how grateful I am that you decided to come on the show today. Well, thank you. I'm grateful that you asked me. And and it was fun and interesting to talk about these things and enlightening for me. They're not always things I sit and think about. And I think it's important to think about them. That's correct. We just never have enough time. That's, that's (laughs) That's the problem. So this program is called Soul to Soul. It's universal ideas for a brighter tomorrow. And we talk about books and we talk about history and all the good things in life. So please join me every third Sunday morning at 7.30 a.m. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Special Programming, sponsored by Public Radio KUNV 91.5. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. 91.5 